Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. And this week we start a new series on Galatians. Um, for our Sunday morning series. So we studied through Galatians this summer um, in the midweek huddle, and now we're going to do a preaching series of about six, seven weeks um, going through the book of Galatians. So today, in that vein, I'm going to be talking about um, no other gospel. The whole Galatians series, we're talking about liberty in Christ, emancipation in Christ, freedom in Christ, but we're going to start where Christianity starts talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, then we'll dig in. Lord God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as your people. Thank you for what our ears have already heard, what our hearts have already felt. Thank you for what you're already doing in the midst of our people this morning, your people this morning. God, I pray that you would um, use my lips, use my voice to convey your word. I pray that in the ways that I communicate ineffectively, Holy Spirit, you would take those things and and translate so that everyone would hear it and accept what you would have to say, not what Mike Dean has to say. God, I pray that this would be a church that knows the gospel full well and that knows the liberty that comes from believing in Jesus the Christ. God, I pray that we would believe and trust and preach and accept no other gospel because there really is no other gospel. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's give a little uh, context to the book of Galatians. So Paul uh, started churches in Galatia, and after he left the church of Galatia, a group of Jewish Christians entered into the region and began denouncing the gospel of salvation by faith that Paul had preached. These Jewish Christians were referred to as Judaizers because they claimed that followers of Jesus must continue to fulfill the regulations of the Old Testament law like the Jews did, including circumcision, sacrifices, obeying the holy days, and and the other laws. Um, So if they did those things, you can have Jesus, but if you add these things in, then you are truly pleasing God. But if you're not, then you're coming up short. Paul was completely against the message of the Judaizers. He rightly understood that they were attempting to twist the gospel into a process of salvation by your works. Salvation by your works. The Judaizers uh, were attempting to, to hijack the early Christian movement, and they wanted to return it to a legalistic form of Judaism. Again, kind of taking Judaism and just adding Jesus to it instead of Jesus being now the only necessary um, component that our salvation comes through. So to these new Christian converts, though, it sounded plausible because these folks knew the Bible so well. They were actually Jews, and they kind of called into question even Paul's legitimacy. But there were some areas that Paul and these Judaizers actually agreed on. Paul and the Judaizers actually agreed in proclaiming that what God had accomplished through Jesus, the Messiah, in terms to justification was both for the Jews and the Gentiles. They agreed there. But the question is, how were Gentiles to receive God's gift of Jesus or God's gift that comes through Jesus? 
And that's where they disagree. The same way we with a lot of other religions can agree on certain facts about Jesus. There are some points where we got to part ways because on the most important things, we disagree. According to Paul's preaching, God offered justification through the faith of an individual being in Christ. He, God offered justification through the faith of an individual being in Christ. According to the Judaizers, faith in Christ, it had a role. It was an ingredient. But salvation was not complete without observing the works of the law. So the theology of the Judaizers, just for, again, this historical kind of context, a key factor uh, in preaching of, uh, of works was an instant, I'm sorry, insistence on circumcision and observing the calendar feasts. The Judaizers argued as follow these three things, these three points. The one true God had blessed all the nations of the world in Abraham who believed and then as part of the covenant gave Abraham the commandment of circumcision in Genesis 17 and gave him the heavenly calendar. Okay. Number two, Jews are descendants of Abraham through Sarah, the free wife, and have observed the covenant of circumcision and the law given by angels to Moses. But Gentiles are descendants of Abraham through Hagar, the slave wife. Which brings us to number three. Since the work of Jesus the Messiah was now being extended to Gentiles, and Gentiles can now fully uh, be included in the covenant, they are required to be circumcised in imitation of Abraham and do the works of the law. The Judaizers' message was, it was pretty persuasive, uh, especially since Paul, you know, he came into this whole Jesus movement a little bit late. He got the gospel a little bit late. He, he didn't know Jesus the way the other disciples had gotten to know and spend time with Jesus the Christ. And this fact was also a way for the Judaizers to cause confusion among the church in Galatia. They called into question Paul's authenticity as an apostle and the very gospel that he had passed on to them. They probably were asking those new Christians, was, was Paul even really a disciple of Jesus? You know, all the, all the real disciples actually do keep the calendar, and they're all circumcised. They observe the food laws, and this guy that never really walked with Jesus came and told you, you don't have to? Is he really legitimate? Wasn't Paul over here eating swine with y'all? That brother ain't even kosher. You gonna believe Paul? So let's pick up in Galatians 1. We're going to take today uh, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our, our God and Father. 
to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than that you accepted, than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So we see here that, that Paul is astonished. He's, he's surprised. Along with the, just the shock, though, he, he, I'm sure he's anxious and worried. These folks that he have labored with, spent time with, given the good news of Jesus Christ, they are now taking hold to a gospel that does not save. They're taking hold to a, a whole other gospel. Like, I, I, I worked real hard, baby, to, to make this money and buy you these J's, and you traded them for some, yeah, some shacks. Well, I don't know. I don't know what they... <laughs> I don't know what the equivalent would be. I don't know. I'm just saying. But, but, but that's, that's trivial. This can present an enormous danger. Also, I think we hear some anger in Paul's voice, right? His language is pretty strong talking to the, these churches in Galatia. And he's directly aiding, uh, angry at the ones who are misleading the converts and he refers to them as people who are trying to pervert the gospel and he calls condemnation on them. But more indirectly, he's also angry at the Galatians themselves, trying to warn them that, that you are quickly deserting the God who called you. That's a serious charge to make. They are personally turning their backs on God. But why is Paul so angry? Why is Paul so concerned? Because if the Galatians are really turning their backs on God and taking hold to a gospel that isn't really a gospel at all, then they are really in a dangerous place. And people might say, well, well Paul is just being arrogant. He's just saying that his, his word and his gospel is the right gospel, and, and that's a little bit arrogant. But, but the anxiety and the anger that Paul is expressing, I don't, I don't think it's one of arrogance. I think it's like you and I would if we saw our child like choosing a way that leads to destruction. There's a love, there's a, a compassion, there's a, a desire to see these people actually uh, living out the faith and being in a true, loving, redeeming, redemptive, transformative relationship with God. And he knows what these Judaizers are trying to give them will lead them the other way. Okay, but the, the main question, I guess, here, if all of this hoopla is about uh, this turning from this gospel and there is this one gospel, and if anybody preaches another gospel, may they be accursed, what is the gospel? I'm so glad you asked. 
Well, well, first let's look at what Paul says just in this passage. He doesn't give a complete outline, but he gives us some, some ideas and some elements of the gospel here. First is that we are helpless and we are lost. And that's a, a, a statement that sometimes is not comfortable. Even in church settings, we don't like to, to talk about that. But, but the good news is only good news if there's first some bad news. You two miles from running out of gas. But there's a gas station half a mile away. See how the good news is better when there's some bad news? In verse 4, it talks about us being rescued. See, this is a part of what makes our our faith unique, too, because uh, other religious founders, they came to teach primarily, but our our Savior came to rescue. (laughs) Jesus was a great teacher, but when Paul gives us this nutshell version of Jesus' ministry, he don't mention the teaching at all. Maybe because that makes them, you know, that's on par with all all the, you know, the false gods, all the gods, right? But... The average person on the street might believe that a Christian is one who just follows the teachings of Jesus, the examples of Jesus. But Paul shows us here that there must be more to it than that because because the word rescue, you don't use that word rescue unless there is, is, is a lost or perishing condition present. A helplessness. They are perishing and unable to recover themselves. So this word rescue teaches us what what theologians call spiritual inability. Second, we learn what was done to rescue us. Well, Jesus made a sacrifice uh, uh, in verse 4, which was substitutionary in nature. It was substitutionary. It was a sacrifice that was made in our place. This is another reason why our gospel is so revolutionary is because Christ's death was not just a general sacrifice, but it was a substitutionary sacrifice. He didn't just do it for us. He did it as us in our place. We get credit for the work he did. This means that he did not just merely buy us a second chance. No, no, no. He didn't just buy a second chance. He did all that was needed to be done in our place. And if Jesus' death really paid for our on our behalf, then we can never really fall back into condemnation as long as we are believing in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we talk about this just God. See, when I was growing up, if you went to the store and you gave them a 20 and they gave you $10 more than you were really old, because maybe they math just wasn't mathing that day, we called that a blessing. Any mistake you made that was in my financial favor, the Lord is good. But I believe the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and add no sorrow. Now, they might get fired, so I'm not going to call that a blessing. But because God is just, there's no way that he can condemn us 
after saving us because if Jesus' work paid the total debt and then I got to go pay that debt, Jesus is being paid double. That's not just and that's not God. Jesus did all that we should have done in our place so when he becomes our savior, we are absolutely free from penalty and condemnation. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I got to go. What the Father did, let's talk about what the Father did. God accepted the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf by raising him from the dead. That's in verse 1. And by giving the grace of peace. That's in verse 3. And Christ, that, that Christ won and achieved for us. But why did God do it? And here we get to some of the crux of, of what the gospel is. Why did God do it? Was it because he looked into the future and saw how good we would be? Absolutely, come on. <laughs> Absolutely not. It was all done out of grace. Not because of anything we have done, but according to the will of God, our Father. We did not even deserve or ask for the rescue. But Jesus came according to the will of the Father. In fact, there's not really any indication for any other motivation for Jesus to come and rescue us except the will of the Father. Somebody say, that's enough for me. Therefore, salvation is sheer, unmerited grace. And that is why the only one who gets glory forever, that's verse 5, for our salvation is God and God alone. God and God alone. In verse 6, we are told that they were called by the grace of Christ. This means that God called us. We did not call him. Again, grace. And God accepted us right away despite our lack of contribution or worthiness. That is the order of the gospel. God accepts us and then we follow him. Other religious systems and even a tainted, uh, 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 adulterated Christian religious system will have it the other way around. We must give God something and then he will accept us. But if we add to the gospel, we rob it of one of the main distinctives that makes our faith different, set apart, and unique from all other religions. To add the Mosaic ceremonial law to Christ is not simply making a revision of the gospel, but it's a complete reversal of the gospel. If you add anything to Christ, that's the grace of Christ plus anything else, as a requirement for acceptance with God, you have completely reversed the order of the gospel. And that makes it null and void. That's why in verse 6, Paul says that the false teachers are producing a different gospel. Which he immediately comes back and makes clear, it's really no gospel at all. Another gospel is not a gospel, it's poison. It, it, it looks like water, and, and it might actually mostly be water, but just a few drops. All right. 
A gospel of salvation by Jesus plus works can do great harm to us, just like a few drops of poison in this bottle could do great harm to me. A gospel of salvation by Jesus plus works is no gospel at all. It is a weight and it is a burden that Christ actually died to free you from. Eastside, we must reject that gospel. To change the gospel, even the tiniest bit, is to lose it so completely that the new teaching has no right to even be called the gospel. Martin Luther said it this way, for there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. It's the only other option. So they were adding to the gospel and Paul is writing to say, yo, don't do that. That's not good for you. And we can look at them and we can say, man, Galatians, how foolish, like Paul said to him, how y'all just going to, how, how, how you can't tell them apart? Well, we add to the gospel too. Let's not be so self-righteous. Some of y'all told me, you take one step, God will take two. No, the gospel say God took the first step. And he keep taking steps and steps and steps in pursuit of us, desiring that we would receive him and love him and trust him. Some of us daily struggle with this thought that God only wants us when we're having a good day in a good spiritual season. And some of us are right now maybe not even in that season. So we're thinking, okay, I'm coming back, but I just got to clean myself up first but no that would be completely antithetical to the gospel that's not how this thing was set in motion while we were still sinning against him is when he chose to die for us we are we were not attractive we were not appealing we were not impressive we were not worthy we were not behaving well Some of us know where we was at when God called out to us. You wasn't doing the right thing. God didn't want you because you surrendered your life. You actually surrendered your life because he was already in pursuit of you before you chose to surrender. Some of us go around telling a lie that It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a loving and good person. Don't that feel so Christian-like? As long as you're a loving and good person. It doesn't matter. Really? When, When people say all good people, regardless of their religion or lack of one, will find God, it sounds super open-minded. But that's just on the surface in reality, it rejects the principle of God's grace. How? First, it teaches us that good works are actually enough to get to God. If all people can know God, then Jesus' death was really unnecessary. All it takes is some virtue. 
The trouble with this is that this means that bad people have no hope. That's a contradiction of the gospel. The gospel invites the good and the bad to God's feast because good or bad, you're still not perfect. So if you say that people are not saved by faith in Christ, but by being good, then you will only invite the good to God's feast. But God's grace is so much larger than that. It covers so much more ground than that. He has invited all to come. Second, though it sounds flexible, it's really moralistic in in another sense because it indirectly encourages people to feel that if they are tolerant and open, that that alone will please God. The gospel, however, challenges us to see our radical sin. Without that sense of our own evil, without that sense of us recognizing our own evil inside of us, the knowledge of God's Grace will not actually transform us. If we don't see ourselves as evil, why do we need a savior? Why do we need a redeemer? Why do we need a transformer? Y'all, we reject any teaching that is not based on and rooted in at least these two facts when it comes to the gospel. One, we are too sinful to contribute to our salvation meaning we need complete rescue. And two, therefore we are saved by belief in Jesus' work, the grace of Christ, plus nothing else. Can somebody say plus nothing else? How can we be sure that the gospel we believe is true? Well, Paul lays down a great plumb line, a great standard for us to judge all truth claims, whether external like writers or thinkers or preachers or internal like feelings and sensations and experiences. All of those have to be judged by this plumb line. And that standard is the gospel that he and all the other apostles received from Jesus and taught and which is found in the rest of the book of the Bible. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. It says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. In order that, why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, you, will, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God dying for the ungodly? Very rarely will, you, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this right here. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, sorry, if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul says, if we should preach a gospel other than the one that has been proclaimed in this very book, in this very passage, in these other passages all over the scriptures, let them be eternally condemned. So that means it don't matter if a preacher, a pastor, a bishop, a rabbi, a monk, a missionary, a prophet, an apostle, a theologian, a seminarian, a teacher, a professor, the pope, the king, the duchess, the evangelist, the queen, the peasant, your mama, your grandmama, a demon or an angel, if anybody comes teaching another gospel, they can all get the smoke. Paul even includes himself. That's crazy. Paul's not trying to convince them of him. He's trying to convince them of Christ. He includes himself. He's saying that, look, look, if I ever change my mind, if I ever come back saying, oh, you know, I thought about it and I thought he said this, he actually, if I ever come back with another version of this gospel, may I be accursed. This is very important because Paul is saying that even his own his own apostolic authority it derives from the gospel's authority. Yeah. It's not the other way around. He's an apostle of an apostle because the gospel is true. The gospel is not true because he's an apostle. And this is why we reject the prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel and Mormonism and and the Hebrew Israelites and the Jehovah's Witnesses and and the social gospel and any gospel that needs an adjective in front of it it's not the gospel it's not the gospel it's kind of like bacon (laughs) it's not fair that you can call turkey bacon bacon Once you remove the pig, call it something else. It's disrespectful. Can I get an A? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Our experiences must be judged by the gospel, not the gospel by our experiences. I need to get out of here. Why is Paul so uncompromising in this? And I'm going to be quick. Worship team, you can prepare yourselves to come, prayer team. And it's what I've stated already, but let's, let me just hit it again. 
there are at least three reasons that I can see. One, you are deserting the one who called you to turn away from the true gospel. Paul's argument is that if you abandon true, see now I'm putting adjectives in front of me. If you abandon the gospel, it, you're abandoning Christ. What you do in theology eventually affects how you live. So a difference in your understanding of doctrine and theology regarding the gospel will lead to a difference in your understanding about Jesus. And your life will, will bear that fruit. Secondly, a different gospel is, again, it's really not a gospel at all. And, and if the gospel is the power unto salvation to, to those that believe, if you're believing in a false gospel, then, then you have no power. You can go and put some um, Crisco, you know, vegetable oil in your tank all you want. But if it's not actual petroleum, like if it's not actual gasoline, if it's not actually, like it's not going to power your vehicle. Now, some of y'all done rigged some things, so I know there's some objections to that. But the power of salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly and lastly, a different gospel brings with it condemnation. Later in the book, uh, Paul says that different gospels bring a curse with them. This means ultimately that to alter the gospel is to play eternally with life and death. And that's why we're willing to tell you the truth about our conditions as humans in need of a savior because of our sin. Because some of this current day contemporary gospel doesn't want to talk about the reality that like there is um, um, a destination. There is a reality without God for those who do not accept Jesus the Christ. Call it hell, call it eternal separation, call it eternal damnation, whatever word you want to use. Like Jesus talks about it and teaches about it. And one of the current um, gospel or, or, or Christian kind of factions is one where that doesn't exist at all and we pick the parts of Jesus' teaching that we like and we put them all collected in a book and this is now our new religion that's not Christian faith that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ at all this also means pretty practically that in a situation where there is no gospel and where, the, and where a different gospel brings curse, then that means fear, anxiety, guilt, shame, condemnation. That, that's going to always be attached to those who believe in a different gospel. That weight, that shame. Some of us come out of workspace salvation camps and we know the, the daily fear of just disappointing God or trying so, so hard just to not offend God because we also probably believe that, you know, if, if we did that and we didn't get to repent before we die, um, you know, he depart from me. All of these just unbiblical truths that weigh on our, our souls, our minds, our, our, our emotions, our, our psychology. But the gospel brings life. The gospel brings freedom. The gospel brings liberty. 
What gospel do you believe? What is the source or contributing factor to your justification with God? Is it your activism? Is it your prayer life? Your financial generosity? How much you fast and pray? Are these the things that make you right with God, that, that makes you accepted, justified before God? Now, Mike, we just came out of consecration. You said fasting and praying. No, 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 we should do these things. All of these good works. No, we do good works as a response to believing the gospel. Are you able to conceive, to accept, to even consider this idea that you can come just as you are to a God who is so full of love that he wants you just as you are? And he loves you so much that he wants to transform you into who he desires you to be. Because none of us who come to him when we encounter him have done life with him yet. And he upgrades you, let me just tell you. He, he's, he's come that you might have life and have life in the full, in abundance. If you are trusting in anything else, if you struggle to, to believe this, if, because the enemy is going to, to try to convince us of the, the other all the time. The, the enemy's going to try to bring shame and guilt to us all the time. The enemy wa- does not want us to believe the truth about the gospel. I just want to challenge you to repent and believe. Repent and believe in the one that, that God has sent to free you, to bring liberation. If that's a struggle for you, I would love for you to come to the altar and receive prayer from someone on the prayer team or the altar will be open. You can just come and commune with your God. Let's pray. God, we are are a people who who might have doubts in areas, Lord, but we want to believe and we're asking you to help our unbelief. And some of our unbelief is not that you did it or would do it or could do it. It's that you would do it for us, that you would do it for me. And there's some people in this room that are envious of others because they see a relationship with God that they wish they could somehow ascertain that they could somehow grasp, they could somehow, and, I, and maybe they're trying to work to, to get it. And God, would you just convince them of your love for them that apart from what they do? It's so hard to see it and believe it because in this life, everything you only get as a result of what you put out. Everything is transactional. So it's so hard for some of us to conceive this, this love and this grace, especially of, of this value, without us putting something very uh, worth, worth very much out to receive it. <laughs>
We don't feel like we deserve it. We don't feel worthy. And therein lies the gospel. We're not. So God, I pray that hearts would, would believe this truth about you and would turn to you. And God, as we go out into our calling, as we go out as sisters and brothers and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers and friends and co-workers and managers and bosses and owners and supervisors, God, I pray that we would live out of the reality of our identity in you. God, I pray that we would be spirit-filled people making kingdom impact in this world, being a vessel that you are using just to get your grace through to affect a city, to affect a community, to affect an organization, to affect a workplace. God, I pray that we would be so convinced of your love for us that it would transform every relationship that we have, that it would transform how we see people. If you can receive any and every type of person, God, would we not put up walls and barriers and blockades against those who offend us, think differently than us, vote differently than us? God, may the, may the truth of this gospel and your grace, uh, may, maybe we unblock somebody off of Facebook this week. Maybe we call that, that parent that we cut off communication with because uh, of something less important than your gospel. Something that we've put at even par with your gospel and we've added this thing and attached it to their salvation. And because they see things this way, they can't be a child of God. God, may may we humble ourselves. May we receive your grace. And may we give it away for your glory and the good of this world. We love you and we praise you forever and ever. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Eastside, let us respond and worship.